Hello and welcome to X and Y, the podcast where we jump on the coronavirus bandwagon to talk about being socially distant and maybe life. I'm Aaron. And I'm Dave. I think the last time we recorded a podcast was in 1982. (laughs) Did you know that Ronald Reagan was president back when we recorded our last podcast? Yeah, I remember that. I was two years old. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Reagan. Yeah, had some good economic ideas that worked out real well. <laughs> yes, trickle down economics. Yeah, yeah, they worked great. It has been a little while. The last episode I think that we recorded was talking about. I can't even remember my worst nightmare anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the the CRISPR. It was CRISPR. talking about dystopian futures of CRISPR, and here we landed in a completely different dystopian future. How the fuck did we get here? You know, like, we've talked a lot about this sort of thing happening, mostly because it's fun to talk about and somewhat in jest. So it is kind of weird to find us in this position. But, you know, like, if you combine, I guess not really CRISPR, your biggest thing had always been superbugs, Aaron. That is true. I don't know. Is this close enough? I think that this is close enough. I think that, I mean, this is in some ways, like if we had thought about it for more than the length of a podcast, we probably would have seen that the natural end of a pandemic or response to a pandemic would be all people isolating themselves and fear running through society rampantly instead of all people just dying. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's been nice, uh, kind of nice to see that people are generally somewhat responsible, although... You know, like, so here in Ann Arbor, right, this all came down in March or whatever, and Detroit got hit pretty hard, as people know. And, like, that week, like, it was it was pretty instantaneous where Ann Arbor just shut down. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I remember I'd go out, I'd had to go out to get, like, milk or something, and, and there'd be nobody on the roads at all. It was just yes. go, to a complete ghost town. But it only really took, here in Ann Arbor, quote-unquote, progressive utopia, it, it didn't take many weeks for people to really start to be out and about a lot more. Yes. I'd say three, four weeks afterwards, it started to feel almost normal on the streets when I was out once every three, four days or whatever. Right. So people find a way to stay apart, but people still find a way to get back to life in some ways. I don't know. Yeah. I think that getting back to life has different meaning for different people, obviously. In the neighborhood here, there's a million people walking around, you know, and so it feels like there are a lot of people out and about. And when you go to Kroger or Meyer or wherever, it feels like there are a lot of people out and about too. So that's definitely, if you only go to those places, then it definitely feels like sort of normal life. Yeah. Except for everybody wearing masks and crossing the street when they see you running down the sidewalk. <laughs> that's right. Get out of the way, I'm coming through. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but those people aren't at their jobs, right? So that's the big thing. Right. People are not at their jobs. Well... Most people are not at their jobs. Maybe they're working at right. home like we are fortunate enough to do. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's just really crazy. It's amazing that, I guess it's not really amazing, but it's affecting everybody. All podcasts that you listen to now, like the number one topic is coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, how are we handling the pandemic? That's where the money's and, at, Aaron. Yeah, that's, that's the money. We're jumping on that <laughs> money train right now. So if you go to Patreon... You you won't actually find us. <laughs> we, we can't even we can't even get it together enough to make a Patreon. <laughs> I don't think they would have us actually. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Our one listener, <laughs> send money, Lee. Send money. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how have you been reacting to this in terms of like how is your life obviously your life is really altered but like how did your life change in terms of classes and everything yeah so the thing that we can maybe contribute is to talk a little bit about learning and classes and research yeah and we kind of have similar experiences but maybe some different experiences just by the nature of our two universities you know i think that we got kicked out of our office basically on the same day something like march 16th comes to mind i don't know right it was like wednesday yeah we got the letter and the email on wednesday and you know you had two days actually class was canceled on one of those days maybe and then it was like right thursday and friday yeah you're online starting monday 
And I didn't even go in. So that Wednesday, I didn't go in because one of my kids was sick. So I hadn't been in since like that Tuesday or something. I don't know. It was just, it was very sudden and very, it was a very quick transition. It hit a lot of people in different ways at Eastern. For me, I had four different courses and two of those courses were already online. So that was kind of nice because I didn't have to do anything other than say, hey guys, I hope you're safe. Just wanted to let you know that everything's going to continue just as it was before this happened. Right. That was kind of fortunate. One of my classes was a traditional lecture class. And so that one was like, okay, we're going to go online. How are we going to do this? And the way that I ran that course is I can, because students had started the semester with a set meeting time, and a lot of people, I think, went this direction, we just continued to meet at that time. Hmm. There's a lot of research on whether or not distance learning should be done synchronously versus asynchronously. Yeah. And I'm not an expert on this, although I, I tend to maybe be more on the asynchronous side of things. I think that tends to be more effective. But in this case, since we had already had a meeting time, I wanted to use that meeting time just because like then I can see the students. They have some semblance of normalcy, like, hey, we get to see each other a couple of times a week. You can ask questions. You can maybe talk to your friends that you don't get to see anymore. Right. And so we went that route. And it was, I don't know, a few students ended up basically dropping the course for whatever reason, you know, for one reason or another. And then the rest of the students were there. Discussion was not great. How many students did you actually have in that class? I only had nine students in that class at the start. And I think I lost two of them after the pandemic started, but maybe they were on their way out already. Pretty small class. Okay. And so that helped be able to do that because, you know, with only a small handful of students, you can meet and people can talk if they want to. Yeah, you can see them all on Zoom. You can see all of them on Zoom. Yeah. They quickly stopped doing that, though. They just turned off their camera. (laughs) So you had no idea whether they were actually listening or just <laughs> logged in and then walked away from the camera? Yeah, I mean, that was always, that certainly was a possibility, right? Yeah. That's a question, right? If you do synchronous learning online, do you require students to have their cameras on? What questions are there if you're recording the conversation? Because I would record them and post them yeah. on Canvas. Does everybody's video actually then get captured in the video? Yeah, I think it shows you what the host sees. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and these are all questions that were kind of thrust on us really quickly. So, you know, I, yeah. was, I was trying to do things in as safe a way as possible, I guess. Yeah. And I wasn't going to force students to have their cameras on. I wasn't going to force students to participate. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So was it uh, as effective as I would have liked? No. Did we get through the semester and did the students learn something? Yes. So I yeah. guess that's good. That is good. But you said you had four classes and we've talked about three. Yeah. And so the other class was a senior level project-based course and yeah so (laughs) right so they were working on projects and we had a zoom meeting together to discuss this right away and they said that they wanted to come in and get their projects and bring them home and they were allowed to do that that monday and so they all came in they picked up their stuff took it home tried to make it work for a couple weeks and figured out that they just couldn't do it because i mean they were they still had to be apart from one another so for the most part, they were not able to make much progress at all in the projects. A couple of students wrote some more software and did some more testing, but it was pretty minimal. And I was okay with that. Again, I was just, you know, that wasn't the top priority thing at that instant in time. Right. And the students had done a really good job up until that point. They'd learned the things that I wanted to learn with regards to their projects. So the rest of the course is just writing. That's a writing intensive course. So they had to do some writing. And that worked out. You know, they still did their writing. They just didn't get to complete their projects, which is a huge bummer because they were all really excited and they had really invested a lot of time and effort. Yeah. Such is life. Yeah. So I taught two classes this last semester. One is a freshman level class and one is a master's level class, both on balloons, making payloads for balloons, where the master's students had significantly less direction from me, and there was a lot more expected of them, so it was harder in that regards. And the freshman level class was much more of a lab-oriented class where we sort of hold their hands a little bit more and give them more direction and help and stuff like that. And there's also a lot more assignments that they have to do and reports and all of this stuff because there's a big tech com requirement and everything for it. So the master's level class, you know, the first thought on that Wednesday was basically everybody come in, or I think on that Wednesday, it was, we will sort of sneak into the lab and we will do one team at a time type of work. 
because no one had closed any buildings or anything right. and they were letting students into cane labs and so we were like just go into the lab be distant and you know be careful and we'll take over maybe a couple more labs and we'll just schedule times for each of the people or each of the teams and so that went for like a week and then it was like nope no one's allowed in the buildings right and that okay now how do you actually do this class that requires like building of this thing and the only thing that we're doing in this class there's no reports there's no nothing it's just building this thing and flying it yeah. and testing and everything and so i i said okay if you want to Go in, grab all your stuff, grab a power supply, grab voltmeters, grab soldering irons, whatever you need, write it on the whiteboard and take it home and work on your project. And then it changed again, which is you basically just can't do anything. U of M basically just said you can do nothing that is close to like in person. And so they said you can grade on what has been completed at march 14th or 15th or 16th or whatever last day and that's it yeah and so then effectively the class just disappeared because there was nothing we could do similar to like your class which is like we try to keep it up and everything but the system was just against it and so complete and utter failure (laughs) It's what I mean. I, there's just what else can you do, though? I mean, yeah, this circumstance is so unique. You just yes. have to say, listen, we're going to have a unique solution to this problem, and that solution is we're just not going to do anything, and you're graded based on what you've done so far, and you know whatever else right. you can think of. Right, and we can come back to that. So this is a master's level class. Yeah, master's level classes. The master students pay. I don't know, $147 million a semester to come to Michigan. And then halfway through, three quarters of the way through, two thirds of the way through, we basically just say like, boop, we're done. And I think that there were multiple classes where they basically said like, boop, we're done because like lots of group projects and everything. Sure. And like that really sucks for the master's students. Yeah. That really sucks. And I'm unsure what it actually means for them. They're not getting a refund. And do they still get their master's degree? Yes. Is it as meaningful? I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, you make the same argument for any level. And I know master's students, you know, you're supposed to have this real experience that somehow separates you from what you you otherwise would have been. Right. But take it to high school seniors or take it to, you know, Absolutely. fifth graders. There's got to be, and we've talked about this a lot here just because, you know, Lindsay's an educator, and there's going to have to be a complete societal shift in the expectations of whatever group you're talking about. Yeah. And certainly businesses have to recognize that. PhD programs have to recognize it for students coming in that they just lost, these seniors and these master's students just lost. X number of months, yeah, which was something which had some substance to it, and we recognize that. Therefore, we'll ha- we have to adjust our expectations, right? I mean, right. it has to be the case. Yeah, I agree that it's all levels of education. Basically, you just have to assume that you're flushing the education essentially down the toilet. Like, I think that there were some students who probably really did okay during this time because their parents are able to, like, concentrate on them and actually do homeschooling and stuff like that because maybe there's only one person trying to work or something. You know, maybe they really, you know, flourished in this time. I don't know. But, like, so some students probably did really well and other parents probably were like, how am I supposed to deal with this? Like I work full time and I can't educate my kids. Yeah. And once again, that's probably a long lines of privilege in terms of how much money parents make and whether they have to work full time and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, if we look at like my kid's school, for example, I would think that the majority of the students are not doing anywhere near the work in school that they would otherwise be doing, right? Yeah. Just because parents can't do it, you know? Right. You can't make up what's being done in a day at school, especially if you're also trying to work, especially if you're trying to... And the thing that's come up a lot here, too, has been, like, all the learning through, like, Ann Arbor Public Schools is 
pretty much online based, right? Well, that works if you're, you know, computer hoarders like us. We have right. four Macs in our house. So we right. all can be on a computer and we can all do the work that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. We're very, A, very fortunate and, you know, very lucky to have those resources. Most people might have one computer. Right. And so, you know, how do you balance that? It's impossible. And places like Ann Arbor tried to do a really good job of getting computers like, okay, we've got computers, let's get them out to the public. And that's Ann Arbor. Like, what about right. all the other districts that don't have those resources? Right. Yeah. It's So it's it, everything is going to have to shift. Yeah. And then in the fall, I don't know, do you have any idea what Ann Arbor Public Schools are actually planning to do in the fall? There is no plan yet. Lindsay probably has more insight, but when you ask her, she says, we don't know. Huh. She's taking the party line. (laughs) Well, I just, you can't make a decision right now. What I think what you can do, and this is what Eastern's doing, and I think what probably Michigan's doing, is saying, like, listen, we're going to try to set it up so that we can be in the classroom. Yeah. But it's definitely going to look, if we can even do that, it's definitely going to look different than what it looked like last year. And we also can just say, no, we can't do it. The health experts, the guidance that we get from the state and federal government says that it's not safe. And so we just can't do it. I don't think you can make the decision now whether to be online or in person, but you can plan to be in person to some degree and set up systems that'll facilitate that. And then say, you know, later on, listen, it's just not going to work. Yeah, I think that U of M, like the message that's coming down from above at U of M is, in essence, assume online. Yeah. And so, for example, I don't know how public things are, but classes of 50 or above, there are no classrooms at U of M or on North Campus in the College of Engineering where you can have 36 square feet per student and have more than 50 students. And so for equity issues, you can't just say like some students can come and some students can't come and some students get a better education experience and other students like, well, fuck them. So basically they're making the decision. All classes over 50 students have to be online. Yeah. And we need to then concentrate on how can we actually engage with students and give them a good experience with everything being online. Sure. And we're trying to figure out what that means for like, you know, the classrooms in my building are significantly smaller than the largest classrooms in the College of Engineering. So does that mean that all classes where you try to maintain the 36 square feet per student, and if you can't do that because the class is too big, do you just take it all offline? Or do you try to find a bigger auditorium because everything is canceled or i don't i don't know these are the questions that we're struggling with for the fall i mean i think what you do is you cut the class in half but Uh. there's a huge issue with that because as everybody knows like the financial system situation for everybody including universities is real bad really bad so if now you're if everybody has twice as many classes you know that's got to be paid for somehow right so that's a big problem right if you require all professors to teach two sections or three sections of the same class that eats into their research and everything and so like how do you actually manage that do you basically just say like toughen up for the next six months yeah i mean that's a really good question like so eastern's different right so eastern's different because we have much smaller class sizes on average yeah and you can envision a situation where you take some percentage of them, you cut them in half so that there's fewer numbers, and then you bring in some adjunct professors to do some extra teaching, which is reasonably priced. And so the, the instructional budget maybe has to go up a little bit, but maybe not. Astronomical. Yeah, maybe not astronomical. At Michigan, because so many people are supported by research funding, and your the expectation is that you teach one course a semester, Right. it seems like to me that well listen now you're teaching two this semester and you're going to you're going to be fine yeah yeah we're sort of getting mixed messages in some ways because you want to maintain the research excellence sure but you also want to maintain the student population yeah and so how do you actually do both of those things at the same time and i think that that's what people are struggling with how much can we actually ask our faculty to do right and by the way, we're we're not giving any raises, and we may come back later and not take away maybe part of your salary. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's happening to a lot of other people, so it, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I don't know. 
My question is, so, you know, I know a little bit about NASA and I know as soon as this went down, there was news from NASA about, listen, no cost extensions are going to be basically approved. You know, we understand that you can't be as productive right now. And so it's all, it's fine, especially for research like ours, where it's like, yeah, there's not really a deadline here. You know, if you right. get the results six months later, it's, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Do you have a sense if that's kind of the way it is for all the sponsors? I think it's going to come down to whether Congress decides to tighten its belt on everything because they're spending $4 trillion trying to unbury us from this, mm-hmm. or whether you know the $15 billion budget for NASA is so astronomically small compared to the $4 trillion that they're budgeting for just sending people checks that, like, screw it, you know? We're just going to spend all of the money. <laughs> yeah. All of the money that we're printing. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that there's some debate about what is actually going to happen. You're starting to see it right now where Congress is starting to say, or the House of Representatives is saying, we need $4 trillion extra. And the Senate is like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that we can't spend that much money anymore. And so there's going to be a balance. We're going to cut some things and we're going to explode some things And the question is, where are they going to draw those lines? My fear is that they'll have token lines where like, no, we can't spend a lot of money on NASA trying to get to Mars because all these people are starving. But at the same time, spending money on Mars is such a drop in the bucket. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so people are coming down on both sides of that issue. It could be that NASA's budget is like doubled next year, or it could be that it's halved next year. No idea. No idea. Yeah. That's scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's 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 some uncertainty. So, yeah, it is really scary. Yeah. And I think that the Department of Defense has a huge budget. And so that's a really good pot of money to go after. But they also have the biggest lobbyists in you know Washington, D.C. So it may actually be really hard for them to go after that money. It's always hard. It's always hard. Who knows what's going to happen? Not me. Oh, my God. Certainly not me. The scariest thing to me about the fall, we have just completely devolved to just talking about fears now. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're good at. Oh my God, yes. The scariest thing to me is the dorms. You know, if we require first year students to stay in the dorms, I feel like the parents are going to be like, no, I'm just not going to send my kid to school this year then. They're going to take a gap year and that's going to be what it is. Or we're not going to let them come to campus. Right. And so your first semester freshman may just not show up. And it's a question of, are they going to actually be enrolled in classes? Or are they just going to take a gap year? Yeah. That's the scary thing. The dorms are the scary thing to me. Yeah, I don't know how you make that work. When uh, We had a meeting with the president the other day, and that came up briefly. And there's a lot of questions. And you know, right now, the university is sort of trying to figure out, can they require students to live in singles for example is that allowed and if a student says no i want to live in a double even though this is all happening is the university allowed to say no right and that sort of thing so there's there's these questions on both sides like can we a do we even want to open the dorms b can we require certain things and what is the liability it's so complicated because of it being a public institution yeah yeah i, I don't know i can't imagine that you would Let's say that you have a thousand people living in a dorm and they're all sort of supposed to be socially isolated from each other because they're in their own dorm rooms or there are four students to a dorm room. And so these are your four buddies that you can actually have contact with, but no one else and no parties, (laughs) no sleeping over at your friend's dorm room. None of that happens, right? I mean, I'm sure that 18 year olds will definitely obey those rules that you mandate. You know, I think that I've driven on campus like twice. I had drove on campus twice when school was still in session and there were still house parties. Yeah. You know, like, so that stuff's probably going to happen. And that's why it's complicated because fine, if you go get in an apartment, you're on your own. You know, there's no liability here. But if you're a university, you're not forcing, I mean, and maybe you are forcing students to live in the dorm freshman year, but so that makes it really complicated. But even if you just allow them say, okay, we're open and these are the rules, is that, What's the, is there probably still a bunch of liability? Right. If they break the rules, 
they're not supposed to drink on campus. Well, they're 18, so they're not supposed to drink at all. So it's a, I was going to say it's an unwritten rule. No, it's an absolutely written law <laughs> that they're not allowed to drink in the dorm room because they're not allowed to drink. I'm sure that that totally doesn't happen at all. No 18-year-olds ever drink on campus. Yeah, so I don't know how you make those decisions. And this is why I'm glad I'm not an, ad- an administrator because I would not want to. No, I really, I mean, my views on this are actually quite extreme. I don't even know if I want to say them. I actually, my feeling is that U of M should basically like turn off fall classes, especially for freshmen, basically just say, we're going to accept that we can't keep faculty safe. We can't keep students safe. We can't, we can't do this in a meaningful way. And so we should just delay by six months or something and just furlough all faculty members? (laughs) I don't know. I can see why you would say that. And I can, you know, okay, so that's going to affect a lot of people, right? How does the financial side of that work? Faculty members have just your own savings or your paycheck's going to be 20% what it normally is if you're going to be on unemployment. And then what does that do for the university, which has an operating, you know, still has things that they have to pay for, even if nobody's in the building, right? Yeah. No, so, I mean, I honestly, I have thought about this for like a total of 20 minutes or something like that. And so, like, I don't really know how it would work, but the businesses are in exactly the same situation. A restaurant is in exactly the same situation as the university is in. Sure. They have clientele. They want to make money. They want to keep everybody safe. And so the way that restaurants are doing it is the government basically said, you can't do this. Right. And so restaurants are suffering mightily because of this. And so the university has basically said, okay, we're just going to go online. And it's about the same as a restaurant basically saying, pick up service only. Right. You have degraded quality, you have a degraded experience, and you have significantly less people participating in it because of it. And you have to lay off some of the people and, you know, you basically try to tighten your belt and survive for the six months or a year or whatever that it takes. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying that this is the solution that we should do. Going rah, rah, shish, we're going to offer you the same educational experience that you come to know and love at Michigan is disingenuous. And I think that it's it, it has the potential for actually hurting more than being completely honest and saying, we're really struggling on how to actually do this. And we want to work with you as much as possible, you know, on keeping you safe and giving you as much experience as we can. Yeah, I get that. You know, I think that there's the analogy of the restaurants is interesting, right? So you can do takeout and then you can do carry out or whatever. And we are given a choice, right? I'm given a choice as to whether or not I want to do that. And I recognize going in that the experience is going to be not as good as going to sit there and going to sit down. And for me, I'm fine with that and I go pick up food. And so I wonder if the analogy is to say, listen, we know that the educational experience is not going to be the same. You have a choice. You do not have to take this course online, but we're offering it if you would like to take it. Right. And to me, it seems like at least with online courses, you're not putting really anybody at risk to physical harm. And maybe there are some benefits, you know, I would argue that giving people some structure and allowing people to continue to make progress towards their degrees has a significant psychological effect. And I think that makes it worth it. Yeah, I guess for me, my main thought is, I mean, like there's a freshman coming in, there are sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And I think that in some ways you could lump you think about freshmen very differently than you think about sophomores, juniors, and you think about seniors differently than you think about sophomores and juniors, because the experiences are going to be very different, I think. So for us, the easiest group is probably the sophomores and juniors, because they're taking a lot of the classes that they're taking are very specialized classes, and probably smaller classes. And so you could probably offer them more of an online experience easier, maybe not in some of the big departments like the CS department and stuff like that. But I know that in my department in class, those are the classes where you have 10 to 15 people. Yeah. And doing that over blue jeans or Zoom or wherever is not necessarily as nice as in class 
in person, but I think that you can still maintain 80% of the level. Sure. You know, something like that. Okay. Seniors, it's much more challenging because they have a lot of design classes in the College of Engineering. Right. And so how do you do ME450, which is completely a design test build class? You know, how do you do all of that online? That's a huge struggle. Yeah. So my response to that is I know that there are specific reasons why we make students do ME450, but can we change our curriculum for this one semester or one year and say, listen, we just can't do that. We're going to do this other thing instead. Right. Like a design. Yeah. Like a design or something like that. It's, you know, it could be computational based. It could be literary research. I don't know. I mean, there's probably a lot of different things. It could just be more theory. Right. It could be a theoretical project where they have to play around with all the fancy equations that they learned about over the past three years. I think that there's some options. And again, I would go back to like, listen, that the employers are going to know Orbital, SpaceX is going to know that like these students didn't have that design course because they couldn't see each other. Right. I think that there's ways around that. Yeah. But, I, you know, I know that's a huge concern. And I know that people think that those experiences are extremely valuable. Yeah. You know, and again, it's, it's sort of like, well, you know, if a student really wants to have that experience and they, they could postpone their graduation. Yeah which would suck, but at least they were given the choice, right? Right. I get what you say about freshmen, though, is that it's like the fourth class, especially if you're requiring them to live on campus, which I don't see how you could do. Yeah. And part of my issue is that there are better places that teach online classes than me. You know, I can give it my good old college try, literally college. (laughs) (laughs) But somebody who actually designs these classes for a living probably can do a much, much better job than I can. And they probably have the resources and the experience. Well, I don't think that there's enough people out there that do that, right? I don't think there's enough options to to get credit for a course online that's done really well. Yeah, that's probably true. Like if you wanted to take Calc 2 online. Yeah, there's no 5,000 person MOOC taught by God that can make that work really well, right? Right. Oh, can I grade 5,000 Calc 2 assignments every week? That'd be great. You just do it multiple choice, man. Scantron. <laughs> so, but you know, in that case, like, are you probably not going to get the experience that you're looking for? Like, I do agree. I mean, I feel the same way that not the world's greatest online teacher have some thoughts on the topic. But I, I think that the point is, though, that students are probably going to opt to not pay whatever it costs to go to Michigan when they can pay Eastern prices and get, right. you know, an online course checked off. Or the same thing at Eastern. Like, why would I pay Eastern prices when I can pay Washtenaw Community College prices? Right. And so I do think you're right. You'll see a lot of shifting. If you're going to have to do this online, I'm going to go do it where it's cheaper. Right. And you, know, you can't fault them for that. Right. Yeah. So I read an article that basically suggested that in five to 10 years, so that this type of thing may happen for like one year, where everybody's just going to not enroll at places like Michigan and Eastern and just go take a computer science class at Washtenaw Community College or something and do it online or whatever. But then as soon as Michigan starts offering online classes, let's say that we turn our first three computer science classes online and we make the enrollment unlimited, then... And we basically say like, okay, we understand that this computer science class, Engine 101, all right, let's just say that it's that class. We require all of our freshmen to take that class. But then we also open it up to people who want to take it off of the streets. Right. And we offer a certificate program or something like that in computer science or or something, you know. You pay us $2,000 and we'll give you a certificate Mm -hmm. because you've taken these four cs classes that we offer online and now you get a u of m certificate there's an argument i read an article that basically says there's an argument that that is going to start stealing students away from places like eastern because why would you go to eastern and pay three times as much money to get a degree from eastern when you can take classes and get a certificate now from university of michigan in this and so it could be that Places like MIT and Stanford and those places could have massive online classes where you earn all these certificates now, and they basically destroy middle-tier universities. Yeah, so, well, a couple things to say about that. 
MIT especially has for a long time done online courses where, that are accessible to the public. And they may even have those sorts of programs where you can get a certificate already. I forget because it's been a while since I've looked, but you can take a course and you there's assignments that you do and somehow they're assessed, I imagine, by a bot or something like that. Right. So that thing exists. I think what drives that, whether or not that can be successful on a large scale, is employers. Because yeah. you know, a degree from Michigan means something different than a degree from Eastern, generally. But that's when you're comparing apples to apples. And so employers might say, no, we don't want a person with a Michigan certificate in CS because there's a bachelor's program. You should do the bachelor's program. Certainly, there are many certificate programs that have a lot of validity. Lindsay was just going through this because she's considering doing a certificate for upper administration, right? Being a principal and that sort of thing. And you, the state requirements are that you you have at least to have a certificate. And so she's weighing, like, should I go to Michigan? Should I go to Eastern? Or should I go to Concordia? And looking at the cost benefit of all of those things. And that's, you know, for a lot of people, that that's what it comes down to is why would I pay extra to go get the master's when I could pay this amount and get the certificate, which is all I need. Right. And that's because that's what the employer would take. Right. Yeah. But if there isn't really a market for if employers are like, no, we're not going to hire people with a CS certificate, then that's not going to work. And I can imagine for a lot of fields that that's just not feasible. Yeah, I think that there's just such a big push now in the United States. And I mean, this is like something that I hear, but I have no idea like the reality of it, that education is so unbelievably expensive, and everybody's going into debt. And there are a lot of people now pushing back, do I really need a bachelor's degree? You know, look at Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and all these people, I have no idea if they actually have a degree or not. But like, you know, Bill Gates didn't ever get a degree because, you know, he was a wonder kid and you can be a wonder kid too if without a degree. And so I think that there's a lot of that swirling around, Yeah. you know, and so I feel like there is going to be a dramatic shift in education that is going to happen relatively soon. And this is sort of pushing us, accelerating that process. Do you feel like that too? I think that I agree with uh, the financial side of it. I think the costs of higher education are insane. We can't continue to force students to pay these amounts of money. Right. And I try to think about why the costs have become this way. And what kind of one of the things that really makes me angry is it's not like faculty are making more that much more than they did 10. Actually, Eastern, they're not really making more than they did 10, 20 years ago anyway. Right. It's not those costs. It's not even like, and people will say, well, it's all the administration. I think it's really become, it's an arms race. Like it's a facilities arms race, a facilities and resources arms race, right? You have to, students want the nicest and the best things. Yes. But then you make those things exist and now they have to be paid for. Right. And now there's a there's a line item in the budget for the next 10 years to pay for that thing. And that just keeps spiraling out of control. And universities have these huge expenditures that they can't do anything about. Yeah, you're, you're specifically talking about dorms with gold forks in them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> Dorm, and like you can extend it to athletics, to dining. You know, like the dining experience at Michigan is so much better than at Eastern, right? It's yeah. so much better. The food choices are way better. There's more of them. It's better quality. And it costs more. Right. Yes. And so that's just part of it. But there's stuff in the classrooms like this. We have the greatest technology in the classrooms ever. And we have it's in every classroom. And we and so that costs money. Yeah. And all of our buildings are really nice now. Right. All every building is brand new. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And you, yeah. And in a sense, you have to like keep spending money to keep up with your competitor. So Eastern looks at what are the other schools in the Mac doing? Well, we got to do that because they're doing that. And if we don't do that, the students won't come here. Right. And so it just gets more and more expensive. And I think that one of the things that's happened in Michigan and maybe probably other states also is that the state funding has dramatically been cut over the last 10 years. And so Michigan has to adjust its tuition costs to take that into account, basically. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's the biggest loss of revenue has been state money. Right. Well, for Eastern, by a long shot, that's been a huge dent in the amount of money that we bring in. And so that's going to come from somewhere. And so it comes from students. Right. We basically do that. We try to accommodate that by A, raising tuition dramatically, and B, 
admitting the maximum number of out-of-state students as we physically can and still being classified as a, quote, state university. And so we are one of the most expensive public universities in the nation. And, you know, if you're from out of state, you pay over double that. And if you're from like somewhere else in the world, like outside of the United States, you pay even more than that. And so that revenue stream is very important to Michigan. And if we can't allow any of our international students to come in for the fall semester, <laughs> that's that's really bad. That is really bad. Even if you can, probably the number of, so you're worried about like freshmen showing up, but the number of new international students coming onto campus is going to be astronomically low. Yes. Yes. It's going to be like zero. Yeah. It's going to be like, I think right now at Eastern, it is literally zero Yeah, at this point. Right. You have to start letting people actually travel to the United States in order well, to. Even, but yeah, I mean, so yes, of course that, but I don't even think that we have very many new applications or new acceptances from international students you know those numbers right yeah yeah so yes i think that something has to change financially i don't know what that's going to look like yes so we can't basically solve the dystopian universe that we have in this podcast i mean we come up with some pretty good shit here (laughs) i guess it's still shit (laughs) (laughs) that's one way to say it yes Okay, so let's try to turn towards something a little bit more positive. Let's talk about recommendations. Okay. Is that okay? Or do you want to, do you actually want to keep talking about this? uh... No, no, no. I think we should, I think we should absolutely talk about something more positive. Okay. We can head towards the light of the end of the tunnel and start to wrap this up. All right. Fantastic. So you actually have some recommendations listed, which we both have actually read this book. So that's good. Yeah, I picked up House of Sons actually a few months ago, and I read that by Alistair Reynolds. I think because you had mentioned Alistair Reynolds at some point a long, long ago, and and it struck a chord. Yeah. And uh, so the House of Sons, 10-second synopsis, six million years in the future, give or take, civilizations that can basically travel around the galaxy and all the things that that means for those people doing the traveling. I thought it was really good because of that world, because thinking so far ahead and thinking about how people would travel uh, within the galaxy and around the galaxy kind of blew my mind a bit, and it was very interesting. Wasn't it these families, I guess the keyword or whatever, the way to say it, that they maybe even use is like Methuselah families? Yeah, they were clones. The, the main families are clones of two people on Earth long, long ago that wanted to start the galactic expansion of the human race. And so they cloned themselves and sent the clones out into the void. Yeah. And don't they do, I'm thinking of either this or a different Alistair Reynolds book, but don't they, like some of them actually like go around the galaxy, literally make stops around the galaxy and they take 250,000 years to actually travel around the galaxy, hitting all the highlights. Yeah. So they do like data collection. So they measure time and circuits as in a, a circuit of the galaxy. Yeah. And some of the clone families do data collection and, and stuff like that. And then they kind of report back to their whole, to the larger clone family. Yeah. And the, so the way that Alistair Reynolds handles that, the enormous amounts of time and sort of the technologies that he invents to make, that he invents to make that work, I think is really interesting and very well done. And of course, there's like an underlying story. There's conflict. Right. Kind of between the families, but kind of between the families and other versions of humans and that sort of thing. It's all very interesting, but I really like the world building in particular, and the story was excellent as well. Yeah, I think Alistair Reynolds has these really, really huge visions of the future. Yeah. And it's not just the future like 10 years from now. It is the future 100,000 years from now where humans have actually invented like all of this new technology and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I like how he has ships. The ship is 10 kilometers long or something. And, you know, it has a kilometer of ice in the front because as you get up to relativistic speeds, like even a grain of dust can actually destroy the entire ship. So you have like a kilometer worth of ice to basically absorb all the little particles that you're hitting as you go. So, I mean, just the thoughts that he has are just so really cool. Yeah, to deal with these issues that nobody ever thinks about, but, you know, until you're actually reading the story and you're like, oh, what about this? Yeah. Yeah, he has some stories where I think that he sort of tries to tackle the whole Fermi paradox like head on, 
where he envisions that there is some sort of a species or whatever out there that is going around mopping up intelligent life yeah <laughs> and basically destroying other civilizations that got touched on a little bit in house of sons i forget what they were called there there was like an event you know so some of this stuff comes up and, and he touches on that in other books as well but it's always an interesting part of the books and it's one of the reasons like for house of sons and then pushing ice which i know is one of your favorites yeah the end of pushing ice which I'm not spoil or anything, but I like the book. I like the book. And I got to the end. I'm like, ah, now I want to know what happens. There's stuff. There's like this whole other world that's going to open up. Not literally, but yeah, just like all this other stuff that we can explore. And now it's, it's over. Yeah, 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 yeah. That book ended way too quickly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He could start a whole new series in that book. And I don't think he's going to touch on that at all. I agree. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, so one of the podcasts or something that I've actually listened to, they talked about leaving a sense of wonder at the end of books and at the end of TV series and stuff like that. We never have a sense of wonder. We never just end things and leave questions or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the series where you actually like it does not end beautifully in a bow. Those are sort of the most talked about series in existence, you know, right? because we crave that bow. Yeah. But it keeps us more engaged to not have it. Yeah. You know, I think it's true. I mean, I think the way that you feel after a book is instant in that instant is maybe some sense of disappointment if you don't know the ending. But yeah. Over the long run, I think it's much better. One of my favorite books, which I probably have mentioned on the podcast, is not young adult, but it's like child, you know, fifth grade reading level or something like that, is the first book of the, or actually all three, the Bartimaeus Trilogy by Jonathan Stroud, which is basically about monsters and magicians and stuff, which ends in, in that sort of way of like, why? What's going to happen? Yeah. And I've thought about that for a long time now. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. Yeah, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but the ending of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, you have seven seven or eight books where you're following these characters and you get to the last chapter and he really, Stephen King can't end a book to save his life. I'll just put that out there. That's my opinion. But he actually has a page where he says, okay, reader, you are going to be disappointed in this, (laughs) but this is where it's at. Like, this is this is my book. This is how I want to end it. And I'm sorry that you're going to be crushingly disappointed. <laughs> and then he starts the last chapter. Yeah. And he was 100% right that I was crushingly disappointed <laughs> in the whole thing. And it was just sort of amazing that he recognizes that. Well, maybe it's encouraging us to use our brains, right? Like, okay, now the rest is up to you. Yeah, in some ways it would have been better if he had just said i leave the ending up to you (laughs) here i'm putting roland at the dark tower and you figure out the ending that you want instead of like he goes into the dark tower and and like you're just like oh (laughs) god damn it (laughs) anyways all right so i have read a few books since the last time we podcasted And we have probably, like, what ends up happening, you seem to read books much, much faster than I do, or listen to them, or something. (laughs) I don't know. It so much depends, yeah. Yeah. So, the Scythe books, who wrote those? Do you remember? Neil Shusterman. Mm -hmm. Those, Those three books are actually really fantastic. I did not like the end of The Toll. Yeah, The Toll was the third book in the series, and I did not like the end of it. I liked The World. And I liked the ideas that were put forth in it, like that humans are actually like controlled by an artificially intelligent entity in terms of like they're governed by an artificially intelligent entity. Yeah, that part was just amazing. Like, I really liked that vision of the future. And in some ways, like it's a very optimistic view of the future. A thunderhead, a benevolent artificial intelligent overlord. Which is really cool. I think right. I think it's really cool. Right. I have a very hard time. And obviously, it's the main part of the books, but I really enjoyed that part. But it's hard to envision happening here. Yeah. Right. Isaac and I were having this conversation, I think, yesterday about this. Is like You can envision an artificially intelligent entity basically going to extremes in one way or the other of humans. Like, humans are destroying everything. <laughs> therefore, humans need to go. <laughs> Or, like, in order to 
be the best for humanity, we need to basically destroy everything else on the planet and just cover the planet with concrete or something like that. I think that artificial intelligence would go to one extreme or the other, you know, ending in... Yeah, either way. Either extreme is is complete disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's hard to imagine, like, an artificially intelligent entity optimizing things for humanity. That underlying story arc was was very good yes it's very optimistic the other arcs are not necessarily as optimistic i think that so the main kind of the main point of the story stories is that you exist in a time when you've defeated death and so people don't die and so how do you deal with that and so the premise of having people that are responsible for killing other people and that's their job is pretty interesting a bit dark maybe but, you know, it's a good question. Like, what if... Yes. And some people would argue that this is possible at some point. What if that happens? Like, what are you going to do? You can't have infinite people on the planet. Yeah. No, I think it would be good. I think we should actually set aside some time and have a question of the week or something like that. What would happen if humans were to live to, say, 200 years? What would happen if humans were to live to 1,000 years? And we basically... I disagree with him on like humans won't die even if they get into a car crash or something like that i think that it would be very difficult to actually like rebuild humans especially when you start screwing up their brains and everything that's going to be really hard we'll probably come up with anti-aging technologies to allow people to not have diseases and stuff and live for long times you know And there will be accidents that happen and people will die because of accidents. But if you could live to be 300 years old, (laughs) I bet car safety would go (laughs) way, way, way higher. That's one of the reasons I I don't, there are a lot of things about the end of the last book that I didn't like, but I think the idea, I think that's the logical answer to that question is the way that book ends is like, yeah, that's what has to happen if you have lots of people. Right. If the planet becomes so populated yeah. You need to come up with some way of solving that problem. <laughs> yes. And we'll leave it up to the listener to read all three of the books to find out what the answer was at the very end. I highly recommend reading all three books. They're all very good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, Dave, you know, have a good next couple of months in, you know, isolation in your house, <laughs> not seeing yeah. anybody. We'll see. <laughs> No, I think we both are, are we both committing to like actually doing this um, again? Are we starting season three now after like a two year? Yeah, I mean, if not now. Yeah, yeah, we have lots of really good plans, really good plans for season three. <laughs> Great plans. If not now, The Aaron, best when, plans. <laughs> I'm not sure that there's much to go out on. Because, like, my NSF grant oh. ran out, so this is no longer sponsored spon- by NSF. We're, we're looking for sponsorships. <laughs> I'll pull one out of the, the John Green handbook, and, and I'm open to uh, <laughs> discussion with Dr. Pepper at any time they want to have that discussion. Dr. Pepper, exactly. I drink a lot of sparkling ice now. Sparkling ice would like to sponsor us. It is very much like LaCroix, but they actually add some artificial sweetener to it. <laughs> so it's like a good-tasting LaCroix. And actually, what I find ideal is if you take some of this stuff and you add it to LaCroix, it actually tastes really good. This is a little too sweet, and LaCroix is a little not sweet enough. And so, you know. I'm hearing a gap in the market. I'm always looking for that 50% flavor. <laughs> exactly. My next million dollar business. You got one started. Just like our Hasn't podcast. Hasn't hit the million dollars yet, but at least it started. Yes, exactly. I think we're down to like <laughs> negative, you know, several thousand dollars on this podcast. Wait, this is our job. This is our business. We should apply for some government money for payroll. Everybody else is doing it. We should do it too. <gasps> yes. Yeah. No, <laughs> I should fire you and then you can get unemployment. That is a great idea. And I don't want to extend the podcast too much, but it's infinitely more difficult than getting free money from the government by claiming that you own a business and have employees. That is probably true. Oh, yeah. Yes. And we definitely have less than 500 employees in this enterprise. I should actually then say that Autumn Kane is doing you, the editing for this. So thank you, Autumn, for doing the editing in any way. But maybe virtually sometime you can meet Autumn. Happy Friday. I'm going to go eat some uh, lunch. Yeah. I'll talk to you again soon, Dave. Bye.